One of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life for many of us is the issue of balance. Now, when I use the word balance, I am not talking about mediocrity or apathy or a lack of passion or a lack of zeal. I'm talking about a proper kind of biblical balance. Let me illustrate what I mean. Some Christians are so in love with the world and so enamored with the world and so much a part of the world that they have completely lost their distinction as children of God. On the other hand, there are some Christians who are so afraid of worldliness that they have no non-Christian friends and frankly they would feel more comfortable living in a cloister that is completely separated from normal life in society. Both of those positions are wrong because they are out of balance biblically. We are supposed to be in the world, but not of it, as we see what Jesus prayed for us in John 17. We are supposed to be salt and light in the world. We are supposed to love the people of this world, but not love the values and priorities of this world. That kind of biblical balance is difficult for many of us to maintain. Let me give another example, this time from the world of theology. It is very common for Christians to be unbalanced on the issue of election and human volition. For example, there are some Christians that believe that the doctrine of election is the most important doctrine in the Bible and that the Bible has nothing to say about genuine human volition. In fact, I have had many friends through the years who see the doctrine of election in the white spaces in the Bible. It's amazing where they can find it. On the other hand, there are some Christians who believe so strongly in free will that they are not willing to let the Bible say what it says in the area of God's sovereignty and election and predestination. Neither position is completely accurate because the Bible has much to say about both subjects, and that is why there are Calvinists and Arminians in the body of Christ. But this polarization illustrates the difficulty many of us have in maintaining a biblical balance on issues, whether they be issues of theology or issues of Christian living. It is very easy for us to get out of balance. Let me give you one more example to illustrate this, the point because it's, it is specifically related to our text for this morning. Many Christians have a difficulty maintaining the proper biblical balance between love and discernment. It is obvious that the Word of God has a great deal to say about love. And it is equally obvious that the Bible has a great deal to say about discernment. However, it is not uncommon for Christians to err on one side or the other. What I mean is, there are many Christians who pursue love and model love in their lives, but at the same time, they wrongly believe that we ought to love all religions because they say there is some truth in every religion. They completely lack discernment and fail to see that even Satan himself loves religion and loves to operate in the area of religious doctrine. On the other hand, there are some Christians 
who are so extremely committed to discernment, but at the same time, their zeal drives them to be harsh and abrasive and caustic and maybe even venomous. They completely lack love and sensitivity to people. They don't know when to say something and when not to say something and how to say something when it needs to be said. So in their desire to encourage discernment, they end up turning other Christians off regarding the importance of discernment. Both positions or both approaches are out of balance biblically. Love and discernment are not an either-or option for us as Christians. Please understand that, beloved. Love and discernment are not an either-or option for us as the people of God. God's Word exalts the importance of love, and it also stresses the importance of discernment. The Apostle John modeled the perfect balance for us in his little letter titled 1 John. Last week's text was on love. This week's text is on discernment. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 4 as we move into this fourth chapter of John's powerful little letter. 1 John chapter 4. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6, which will form our text of consideration this morning. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are from God or of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this... We know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If you have been with us in recent weeks, then you know how much the Apostle John has had to say about the importance of love. You could almost say that the entire third chapter of this letter is about love in one way or another. The opening verse of the chapter talks about love. It says, What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. The second to the last verse of the chapter talks about love because it says, This is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So the opening verse of the chapter talks about love. The second to the last verse of the chapter talks about love. And the subject of love is addressed in many of the verses in between those two. So John has had a lot to say about love in this letter already. Now he turns to an equally important topic, and that is the topic of discernment. It might be easy for us to assume that only love is important if the letter had ended with chapter 3, verse 24. But this section that we just read brings in the biblical balance. It is a straightforward call to discernment. 
This is the third test or mark of true salvation that John presents in his letter. We've already looked at all three of them in detail, but because they are so important, John cycles back through them more than once in his letter. Do you remember what those three tests are? The three tests or indicators or markers of genuine salvation that John sets forth in this letter are the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test of salvation is the test of obedience or righteousness. The social test of salvation is the test of love. And the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth. All three of these are important because it is possible for someone to have one without the other, but that would be insufficient. For instance, it is possible that someone could be a very loving, kind person, but not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for sin. Such a person might be very kind and gracious and thoughtful and loving, but reject the truth of Scripture. That person is not a child of God according to what the Holy Spirit says in this letter. Or, on the other hand, it is possible that someone could believe mentally, intellectually, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, but that same person not be willing to surrender to Christ, to live for Him in obedience. That person is not a child of God according to what the Holy Spirit says in this letter. So all three of these tests or indicators or markers are important. A true child of God, according to what the Holy Spirit says through John in this letter, a true child of God is someone who believes the truth in such a way so as to have a changed life from, obedient, from disobedience to obedience and someone who loves the people of God. Those are the three markers or indicators of genuine salvation. All three of those components are involved in genuine salvation. All three of those components are marks of a true child of God. Just because someone claims to belong to God doesn't mean he really does. Just because someone claims to be a child of God doesn't mean he really is. Just because someone claims to be representing God and speaking for God doesn't mean he really is. That is what John warns about in this section. Notice how he does it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John, the writer of this letter, was obviously a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his life, when he was a younger man, he had heard Jesus preach and teach many, many times and in many different settings. Therefore, it is no surprise that John writes this verse in the opening part of chapter 4 because, because actually he had heard Jesus address this subject often. Jesus addressed this very topic very often in his own teaching ministry. Let me show you an example. Back up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. All the way back to the first book of the New Testament, the first Gospel record, Matthew, chapter 7. Notice what Jesus says here near the end of his immortal Sermon on the Mount. John, I mean, Matthew 7, verse 15. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. As you can see, this is right near the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. His sermon has been building to this point of application or decision. He doesn't want people to admire the Sermon on the Mount. He wants people to apply it. So he brings the focus to this point of decision. That's what we see beginning in verse 13 of this 7th chapter and running through the end of the chapter. There are two gates, the narrow and the wide. There are two ways, the confined and the broad. There are two destinations, life and destruction. There are two groups, the few and the many. There are two kinds of prophets, true prophets and false prophets. There are two kinds of trees, the good and the bad, which produce two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. There are two kinds of people who say, Lord, Lord, the genuine believer and the false disciple. There are two kinds of builders, the wise and the foolish. There are two kinds of foundation, the rock and the sand. There are two kinds of houses, the firm and the unstable. You can see from all these examples and illustrations that Jesus uses that he is calling for a decision here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He gave his invitation in verses 13 and 14 where he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and confined is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That is Jesus' invitation. He exhorts people to enter the narrow gate and he invites them to walk down the narrow road to life. But watch this. He doesn't stop there. He could have ended his sermon at the end of verse 14 Period, end of sermon, end of statement. Let's move on to something else, but that's not what he does. After commanding people to enter in the narrow gate, he issues a warning in verses 15 through 20. He warns that there are a host of religious leaders and teachers who are leading people down the wrong road, who are leading people into the wide gate. That sounds very strange to many people. They assume that anyone who is religious is good, and everyone who is a religious leader is going to send good messages to people. That is exactly what Satan the devil would like the world to believe. Satan loves for people to believe that all religions are basically the same and that all religion is good. Satan loves for people to believe that all preachers and priests and clerics are pointing people to God. The reason why Satan loves that is because he has many false prophets, whether they realize what they are or not. And beloved, this brings up a very important point. Please hear this. Not all false prophets are intentionally false prophets or knowingly false prophets. 
What I mean is, when Jesus warns here against false prophets, he is not merely warning against imposters and frauds and pretenders. Not all false prophets are intentionally false prophets or knowingly false prophets. They aren't intentional shams or imposters or pretenders, but they are false prophets nonetheless. There are pastors in this category, priests in this category, clerics in this category, monks in this category, imams in this category, rabbis in this category, cardinals in this category, and preachers in this category. They are false prophets because they don't know the truth and they don't proclaim the truth. Instead, they proclaim their opinions or their religion and traditions. Or maybe they preach pop psychology and self-help theories. Or maybe they advocate moralism. But they are false prophets because whatever they preach, they are sending people down the broad road to destruction in that they do not proclaim salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So when Jesus here in verse 15, when he warns about false prophets, do not pass off the warning as applying only to deliberate fakes and phonies. He says, notice verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing was that which was worn by true shepherds. So the warning that Jesus is giving here in verse 15 is that many people who look like true spiritual leaders are not really true spiritual leaders. They may have the position. They may dress the part. They may use the language. They may be called father or reverend or pastor or preacher. So it would be easy to assume that they are true spiritual leaders when in reality they are false prophets. According to Revelation 2.8, Satan has his religious institutions, churches, synagogues, etc. According to 2 Corinthians 11.13-15, he has his ministers... And according to 1 Timothy 4.1, he has his doctrine. Now think about that. He has the whole package. Religious institutions, ministers, and doctrine. Satan has the whole package. Satan is really into religion. All kinds of religion. And he uses the myriads of false teachers that have always been prevalent in the world. But the deceiving part about it, the scary part about it, is that these false prophets and false teachers do not come across as dangerous. They may be nice men or women, sincere, kind, gracious, friendly, but their message is damning because they don't present the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is why Jesus said that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He is not saying that all false prophets are deliberately trying to steal from people. Or that all false prophets are deliberately trying to hurt people. Or things like that. No, but the end result is still the same. They are ravenous wolves in the sense that they do end up destroying people's lives. And even worse they end up destroying people's eternal destiny. They look the part of a true spiritual leader, but their actual condition is such that they are deadly. 
Beloved, please understand, please hear this, that false prophets do not announce that they are false prophets. They do not state that they are false prophets. If it were obvious that they were false prophets, they would have little to no following. It isn't obvious that they are false prophets. They don't have a neon sign flashing above their heads with an arrow pointing down, I am a false prophet. It doesn't look like that. They have the look, they have the talk, they have the position, they have the respect, and that's what makes them so dangerous. Jesus says here in Matthew 7, that there are many people who are on the broad road to destruction. And one of the reasons why, not the only, but one of the reasons why is because there are so many false prophets in religion who assure people that they are on the right road. They tell people that they're on the right road. These false prophets say things like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. It doesn't matter what religion you are in as long as you're serious about it. As long as you take it seriously. Or they say things like this. If you have been baptized, you'll be fine. You'll be okay if you have gone through the five rituals of our church. If you are in this particular religion, religion, you will automatically make it. Don't worry. Just be faithful in attending our services, our functions, and you'll be fine. Or maybe their message is this. Just try to be a good person and everything will turn out all right. Just, just make sure that your good outweighs your bad on the scale once life is done. Or maybe they say things like this. If you haven't done anything wrong that is really bad, such as murder or rape, you'll be fine. Or maybe they're even willing to say this. Even if you haven't repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ, God is merciful and will probably let you into heaven anyway. These are the kinds of things that false prophets say. And Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. How do we know them? By the fruits of their lips, by what they say. You see, the primary mark of a false prophet is a false message. The primary mark of a false prophet is a false message. If his message doesn't line up with the truth of God's word, and especially the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then he is a false prophet regardless of how convincing he appears. If his preaching doesn't point people to the narrow gate of salvation in Christ alone, apart from religious deeds, apart from religious works, then he is a false prophet. What false prophets say proves them to be false prophets. And I would add a further thought, in even what they don't say. They are not willing to say the truth if it is controversial. They are not willing to say the truth if it is not politically correct. They are willing to talk about God, but not willing to talk about the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They only want to talk about the love of God and not, not about the righteous wrath of God. What they say proves them to be false prophets, and even what they don't say. The fruit of their lives isn't always easy to discern. Have you ever noticed that? 
The fruit of their lives isn't always easy to discern, but the fruit of their lips is a solid test. That's why Jesus said, therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus gave these words of warning in the same chapter? Now watch this. In the same chapter that opens with his warning about not being judgmental, hypercritical, and censorious. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. The most commonly quoted verse in the Bible. Often quoted wrongly or misused, but nonetheless, the most often quoted verse in the Bible. Jesus said that first, yet he had no hesitancy to say over in verse 15, Beware of false prophets, and by their fruits you will know them. You see, there's no contradiction here. We should not be judgmental, verse 1. We should not be hypercritical. We should not be censorious. But neither should we be gullible. Neither should we be non-discerning. There are many people who are proud of the fact that they try to follow Matthew 7. Well, I don't judge. I'm not judgmental. But they stop in Matthew 7 and never get to verse 15. Beware of false prophets. Jesus did not hesitate to say in the same chapter, after saying, do not be hypercritical, beware of false prophets. And I remind you that John, the author of the letter we have been studying recently, was right here on this occasion when Jesus spoke these words. John heard it, he never forgot it, and he reiterated it in his letter called 1 John. Let's go back over to our text there in 1 John. So here in 1 John 4, John opens the chapter with a very straightforward call to discernment. The first question that comes to mind when you read this section, verses 1 through 6 of 1 John 4, the first question that comes to mind is this. Why did John use the term spirit? here in verse 1, and throughout this section, and the term spirit, singular, spirits, why that term, when it is obvious he is talking about false teachers, false prophets, and false doctrine? Why use that term? I believe the answer is found in what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 1, when he said this, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, watch this, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 That verse tells us that demons are behind false doctrine. Demons are behind false prophets, which would explain why John says here in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. In other words, John is saying, don't believe everything you hear. And be like the noble Bereans in Acts 17 who searched the scriptures to examine what they had heard to find out if it's true. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Beloved, that's what we're called to do. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Test everything you hear in any Bible study setting, in any book you read, from this pulpit, from any classroom, any Sunday school class. Test all things and hold fast what is good. That's what we're called to do. 
there is a healthy kind of skepticism when it comes to evaluating what people teach in the name of God or people teach in the name of Christ. John gives a specific example in the next verse. He says in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In other words, the teacher or preacher who has an accurate view of the Lord Jesus Christ and an accurate presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a true spokesman for God. Specifically, John says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Let me paraphrase that or say it another way. The person who acknowledges that Jesus is God incarnate. The person who acknowledges that Jesus is God in human flesh. That is a statement affirming the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus Christ. It is interesting to note, and not surprising, that since the first days of Christianity, it is the person of Christ that is most often attacked, and most often skewed, and most often distorted. The person of Christ. In the early days of the church, it was his humanity that was attacked, and minimized, and denied. People said, no, there's no way God could become a man. He wasn't really fully human. He just appeared to be human. Or the the Spirit, Messiah, came on him at his baptism and then left him before his death because God can't die. These are all views that go all the way back to the early days of the church. It was his humanity that was attacked and minimized and denied. And in our day, it is his deity that is attacked and minimized and denied most often. The cults of our day almost always deny the full deity of Christ. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. And the cults of the early days of the church denied the full humanity of Jesus. That's why John made this statement here in verse 2. The true and accurate view of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he was and is fully God and fully man. The person who denies either is not from God, which is why John adds the next verse, verse 3. He says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The person who denies either the full deity or full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is a false prophet. In fact, John uses an even stronger description because he says that such a person is like the Antichrist. The Antichrist of the end times will deceive people about the true nature of Christ and the true person of Christ. He will distort an accurate accurate view of the true Christ. Not only that, we learn from the book of Revelation that the demons will deceive people into believing in a false view of Christ so the world will embrace the Antichrist. That's why John can say here in verse 3 that these false views of Christ that deny his humanity or deny his deity are the spirit of Antichrist that is already in the world. The future Antichrist, John already spoke of him back in chapter 2 of this letter, you may remember. The future Antichrist will be the ultimate error 
about the true Christ. But the same kind of error is in the world already in the form of false prophets who deny Jesus is God incarnate. They deny Jesus is God in human flesh. Error error about Jesus permeates our world. So John makes the contrast in the next verse, verse 4. He says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan has his demonic spirits propagating error throughout the world. But here in verse 4, John says, God has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to overcome them and to see through all the error. John has already hinted at this back in chapter 2. Do you remember what he said? Back up a couple pages, chapter 2. He said in verse 20 of chapter 2, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You already know. In verse 27, same chapter, he says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. John is basically saying this, Listen, the Holy Spirit of God has given you life and has taken up residence in your life, and he has enlightened you to be able to grasp the truth. You already know the truth, so you don't need to wonder if you're missing something. You already know. And he says in verse 26 of this second chapter, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you or mislead you. You don't need to listen to them, John is saying. Specifically, John is affirming that they already knew the truth about Jesus Christ, and they should not be listening to these false prophets. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what he claimed. They knew what he taught. They knew what he stood for. They knew what he represented. So they didn't need to listen to these people who distorted that accurate picture of Christ. So in verse, chapter 2, verses 20 and 27, John is saying that these believers, like all Christians, have the resident Holy Spirit within to give us discernment concerning things that are presented to us as truth. Therefore, we don't need to be influenced by false teachers. However, let me emphasize something. These two verses in chapter 2, verses 20 and 27, these two verses are not intended. Please hear this. They are not intended to be an excuse for laziness with Scripture. Well, I have the Holy Spirit within, so I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to study the Bible. They are not intended to be an excuse for laziness with Scripture. But there is this reality in the life of every believer. The resident Holy Spirit of God has subjectively confirmed to our hearts the truth that is presented in the objective Word of God, so we don't need to listen to anyone who tries to teach us things contrary to the truth of the Word of God. You could say it this way. The Christian, the true child of God, who ends up straying from the truth and into error, has to fight to go contrary to what he or she already knows to be true. The resident Holy Spirit of God is with us, among other things, to protect us from wandering into error and being deceived by the false prophets in our world. As John says in chapter 4, verse 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit of God within you is greater than all of these false prophets, false teachers in the world. 
Now back to our text in chapter 4 as we wind down this morning. Notice John says in verse 5 of chapter 4, They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. This is a reminder to us that error and false religion will always, mark it, will always be more popular than true biblical Christianity. The world flocks to error, and especially religious error. No matter how gracious we try to be in our presentation of biblical truth, no matter how sensitive we try to be in our presentation of biblical truth, and we should be that way, the fact remains that our message is not going to be popular with the vast majority of the world. People want to hear what they want to hear. And false prophets are glad to accommodate. That's why John says they are of the world and the world hears them. The contrast is in the last verse of our text, verse 6, where he says we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The we and the us in this verse is primarily a reference to the apostles. So John is referring to apostolic doctrine or truth. Those who hold to and present an accurate view of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who are true representatives of God, and the people of God will listen to them. Those who don't belong to God are not interested in hearing the truth. This fact, by the way, this fact should not be an excuse for us being harsh or ungracious, or unloving in our presentation of the truth. On the contrary, we need to make sure that we don't put up any barriers that unbelievers can use as an excuse for rejecting the truth about Christ. We ought to do everything we can to make sure that it's the message they reject, not our unacceptable presentation. But when it's all said and done, the true children of God want to hear the truth from God. And those who aren't children of God don't want to hear it. I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I've seen that in ministry. I have been in so many settings where the truth of God is presented in such a clear and concise and and logical and rational and gracious way. And yet when it's all said and done, those who don't belong to the Lord, they just completely reject it. They don't want anything to do with it. Why? Is it because of the It's not factual? Is it because it's not logical? Is it because it's not rational? No, it's because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. And that is the dividing line within humanity, which is why John closes with the statement, by this, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, in our society today, and I'm not telling you anything new, In our society today, the prevailing attitude is that the worst worst possible character trait a person could have is intolerance. We are told that we are supposed to be tolerant of everything and open-minded to everything. But God says there is truth and there is error. Truth is to be embraced, error is is to be rejected. As 1 Thessalonians 5.21 states, test everything. Hold fast what is good.
Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes here in the last couple minutes of our time together, contemplate what you have seen in God's Word this morning. Think about how it should apply in your life and how it should make a difference in your life. And in closing, I want to emphasize, especially for anyone who is present here with us this morning and who does not know Jesus Christ, that what we have seen this morning is that those who present a wrong view of Jesus are false prophets. And the reason the Word of God has so much to say about them and so many serious statements about them is because they are tampering with people's eternal destiny, your eternal destiny, if you don't know Christ. So if you are here today without Jesus Christ, I urge you with all that's in me this very moment, right this moment, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Right where you are seated, in the quietness of your own heart, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, forgive your sins, and to take you, to begin making you the man or the woman He wants you to be. Believe the truth about Jesus Christ and embrace Him. Father, thank You that You care so much about Your truth, that You give such stern warnings as the ones we've seen this morning. May we take those seriously, especially in our day and age. And as we seek to take seriously the warnings about error, the importance of discernment, grant us the grace that we do not, uh, as a result, become out of balance biblically and forget the importance of love and graciousness and kindness. We see how Satan likes to push us one way or the other rather than being right in the middle of your truth and, and exemplifying it in that biblically balanced way. He wants us to be, be out of balance one way or the other to minimize our effectiveness. So grant us the grace to represent you well and properly. Take the truth to which we've been exposed this morning, apply it in our lives, rivet it deep in our hearts. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.